Well, I have a huge, huge list of future ex spouses. You better get to that Marion. I know, I know. Uh, The divorce cannot logistically come before (laughs) the marriage. marriage. Yeah, and it's just, you know, they are starting to die. Some of them. Is that just because you go for the old guys? Or just the list is that long? (laughs) The, The list is that long. Wow. You know, I mean, I, I would need to, like, get married, like, once a week <laughs> to go through my list. We'll come um, up with an action plan. <laughs> it's really, really simple, you know. It's like, I, you don't even have to have sex with me. Just get married. We'll take pictures. I just want, like, 24 hours to pick your brain. Then another 24 hours to start resenting you. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll sign the divorce papers yeah. and move on to my yeah. next future ex. I don't want alimony. I don't think I'm asking for much, but people don't agree with me. I think you would single-handedly ruin the institution of straight <laughs> marriage by enhancing the quality of it relative to the baseline. Just what do you do? You know, I mean, that's the only way you can get through, like, Practice marrying 200 people, yeah, exactly. right? <laughs> can I just do a twofer? Like, I would like to get married to Ezra Klein and Chris Haynes on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> I just want, like, a nice oh, little... you know they would only last a day, too. Mm-hmm. It would be a nerdy, nerdy sandwich oh. of regret. <laughs> Because I always liked Ezra. He's just so bashful on TV. He is so bashful, but he tries with that facial hair, and I don't know who he thinks oh, he's fooling. Oh God, I don't. I don't like that. He. It's. It's like baby's first peach fuzz. Yeah, it just doesn't get work. Some, get some Norelco on that situation. It's clumsy. It's not even cute. Yeah. Whereas with Paul Krogman, I believe he was born with that facial hair. Oh, yeah. And then he just grew into it. have such a binary thinking where we feel like acknowledging one thing has to come at the expense of another. From your last point about how kind of zero sum, the kind of mindset mm-hmm. of the 99% and the 1% and also that puritanical mindset are. Texas, which at this point is becoming like Ayn Rand's wet dream, is really trying its darndest to ban all abortions. Mm-hmm. They sent forward SB5, a set of regulations, bans and restrictions, and special rules that are called trap laws, targeted, what's the R stand for? Targeted regulation of abortion providers. Trap laws that are meant to make it impossible under law for abortion clinics and many places that provide women's health care to remain open and to remain in business in that state. Yeah, it shuts down all but six. The total had been something like nearly 50, I believe. It's getting a second run now. It's been, you know, it's a different number now. They've changed the number. They, like Republicans have done in so many states, try to pass laws that wouldn't otherwise see the light of day and to avoid public scrutiny. Governor Rick Perry of Texas called a special session of the legislature to pass SB5. Costing $800,000 a day. 
A day. A, a day. day. That's money that's not going to be spent on Medicaid to make sure that poor people don't go to the emergency room every time they get sick. It's money that won't be spent on Head Start to make sure that children who were deprived educational opportunities will get a shot at becoming critical thinkers. Um, it's also, you know, money that could be spent on maybe checking out those fertilizer plants. Wait, but it's it's not like any of those have blown up in Texas in the last month and a half or two. Like, why why would you want to do that? Uh, well, you know, maybe. Don't you know that fertilizer pretty much inspects itself? <laughs> The Texas abortion ban would limit more than just abortions. Like there's, there was an article from ABC News. I mean, it eliminates 40 clinics that perform abortions, but they not only perform abortions, they offer birth control and condoms. Well, doesn't it um, defund Planned Parenthood as well? I believe that was the big... They Well, they actually barred Planned Parenthood from the state's women's health program several years ago because the organization funds abortion clinics. Ah. Um, the organization Planned Parenthood now estimates that 130,000 women in Texas now go without preventive health care due to the state's 2011 cuts. Okay, so I'm a little bit behind here. They've already worked ahead of me, (laughs) clearly. Right, and it's like undercover of these special sessions and special extended sessions of legislatures. Mm -hmm. They're passing incredibly draconian laws over massive public protest. And from this article, both men and women, particularly low-income minorities who are more likely to lack health insurance and medical care options, rely on the quote-unquote abortion clinics for services like contraception, STD testing, and even cancer screenings. One in four women in the state of Texas is uninsured. Rick Perry turned down the Medicaid expansion from Obamacare that the Supreme Court allowed states to make optional. Mm-hmm. Medicaid goes to those low-income women. So he's not only denying those women the health care that they need in the first place, he's denying them health care once they get pregnant and then forcing them de facto, not by de jure, not under the letter of the law, but by the practice of the law, he's making women carry those babies to term without any assistance from the state. He is helping fulfill the puritanical vision of pregnancy being a punishment for women having sex. But again, like this article states, it's not at all just restricted to women, the harms that this is no. putting forward. It's, I mean, it, well, it hurts I, communities because the communities end up footing the health care bills. They end up spending more in their to their governments for food stamps and food assistance. Also, you know, prenatal care being so imperative and so important you know, for the women as well as the baby that she's carrying, you know, so... And even all the education along the way, like women's ability to secure information that will allow them to have healthy pregnancies will now be at the whims of private religiously funded companies, those scare clinics that exist all across the South, right near clinics that provide abortions. Actually, they exist here too. Right, in California (laughs) as well. We have tons of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, those crisis clinics, women will have to face faulty and unscientific knowledge. Or if they don't, in many states, they'll now have to face invasive mandatory ultrasounds. Which uh, Scott Walker just signed in Wisconsin. Right. Right. Scott Walker, who busted the public sector unions in Wisconsin in 2011, has 
now picked up the mantle of fighting women's lady parts and just signed uh, an invasive ultrasound bill into law in Wisconsin. Not only that, they tried to ramp the Texas abortion law through with this special session and a courageous and fucking awesome Democratic lawmaker named Wendy Davis had the lady cojones to stand up for 13 hours, 12 and a half hours, really, and filibuster. And she did not do the silent threat of filibuster that today's Republicans use to paralyze the U.S. Senate. Wendy Davis did an actual stand on her feet the entire time filibuster. And actually that that filibuster, um, you know, is was a really, really, really good example of citizenry and, you know, her colleagues coming together and being supportive. Not only that, but it was a really 21st century example of direct action in the political sphere having a good effect. Wendy Davis, to prepare for that filibuster, solicited from women across the country and women in Texas... Um, yeah, on stories Twitter. on Twitter and just b- through her office of women who had needed the services of those clinics and other clinics like them that were facing closure because of this law. When Wendy Davis committed and stood to do her filibuster, she was joined not only by her colleagues, but by thousands and thousands of protesters who completely swarmed the Capitol. I didn't get to see most of the 13 hours of Wendy's filibuster, but yeah, I there caught was about the live last streaming. Five. Right. I caught about the last hour and a half myself. And it was just so amazing and inspiring in the last minutes as the legislative special session was ending for that day near midnight. The Republicans were trying tactic after tactic to try to shut down the filibuster to end it and proceed to a vote on the abortion ban. Another state senator, Letitia Vandepute, who the day of that filibuster had been attending her father's Father's funeral, funeral. came back and was the person who the Republicans were trying to shut down. And completely exasperated, she finally, like, responded with the question, what does it take for a female member of the legislature to be recognized by her male colleagues? In the room, yeah. In the room. And at that moment, the emotion that had built up in the entire 12 and a half hour day of those protesters being silent completely broke. They began this unanimous and deafening roar of a cheer that carried on so long that it ended after midnight. The Capitol Police had to shut down the legislative chamber and escort everyone out. And you could still hear the roar of people who were forced outside of the fucking Capitol building, not just outside the chamber, but outside the building. And people kept like rushing in and bumming their way onto the balcony to yell at them. And despite the attempts of Republicans to not only hold a vote after midnight, after the session was over, they attempted to change Change the the legislative clock and change the timestamp on the fucking website where the legislature lists its official business on the people's back half and they find they backtracked on that when they were called on it let me also note that 
major media was not covering this. All the media outlets, all the 24-hour quote-unquote news networks were completely missing in action on this. And for that day, SB5 was defeated. The vote that was taken was immediately and properly ruled not binding at all. Um, so there was no official vote on the legislation. Uh, legislation. The problem is not only have they already changed the name of the bill to a different code, they restricted the kind of special session and the location of the special session of the legislature to be in this tiny room. So there's no room for an audience now. There's no room for official coverage by anyone or even unofficial live streaming by anyone. So now they get to do it in private. They get to vote on well it's the cover of night literally the cover of night before yeah and now it's even more figuratively yeah yeah sb5 after dark (laughs) it's just so sick the way that these laws are specifically designed not just to close or not just to improve quote unquote the clinics that provide these healthcare services but they're specifically designed to limit women's access to healthcare, to reproductive services, and to make decisions about their own bodies. You know, these these laws also impact men because a lot of men get their STI testing, certain types of like testicular cancer exams are offered at a lot of these clinics, for example. You know, one of the things that I like to say about the abortion issue is that it is predominantly for, you know, people that have uteruses, people that can get pregnant. You know, that that's the biggest impact. But abortion isn't just about women in pregnancy. It's about people having the right to make decisions, not just about their bodies, but about their lives. And trying to strip that is a form of slavery. I definitely consider it evil. The kind of evil as opposed to the more overt bigotry of the past this is the more institutional and insidious and quiet evil it's something that we've experienced in this nation's history before roe was legal yes you know i mean but i also think that complacency like you mentioned earlier is part of it because a couple generations now have grown up under the protections that roe afforded women Well, and also, you know, improvements in birth control. Absolutely. Absolutely. Was a huge factor. But, you know, I mean, it's still what abortion still, I think, by the time a woman is done with her childbearing years, I think at least 40 percent. It depends on the polls. But, you know, you're looking at a large percentage of women having gone through an abortion. It's one of the most common procedures, you know, and, and, you know, to a certain degree. I mean, some of that is like, you know, partial to the fact that, you know, a lot of times with these abortion laws often come with the intended effect of restricting contraception. 
because one of the biggest you know mis misunderstandings that people have is that people who are against abortion are against abortion i mean there may be individuals that are but as organizations as far as the organizational levels go these people are not just against abortion they're against contraceptives they're against a woman being able to have any control over her reproductive system and at best the republican party is regressive about it and at worst they literally dictate the range of the health outcomes that women are allowed to have like they're defining women's rights to pursue that particular health procedure in the context of rape and incest. Slicing and dicing not only that way, but also in terms of trying to ban abortions past a certain level of gestation, when that has no bearing on whether or not a woman should be free to seek that health procedure. And U.S. Senator Marco Rubio has already announced that he wants to bring up the same 20-week abortion ban that barely squeaked through in the House and that would never have any fucking chance of either passing the Senate or being signed by President Obama. But again, it's one of those dog whistles that they have to throw to their base to get people resentful enough and worked up enough to get off their asses and vote for them. But it's sad because that rhetoric and that understating of the humanity of women has effects far beyond just the rhetoric that those powerful people use in support of it. Even when they don't pass those bills, their words demeaning what it is for a woman to be considered free in America, still go on to define those women in every other legislative battle those politicians undergo, every other decision that women who vote for them or support them have to take. It limits people's imagination. It limits women's imaginations for what their options should be, for what they think they should be able to ask for and demand as being American citizens. But it limits all of our imaginations as to how we can make each other's lives better and have some kind of decent civilization in the face of real problems that are actually threatening us. Like, I don't know, the climate melting down or something. The progress that we have made, we learn every day how fragile it is and how sneakily it can be undermined. And caught, I mean, and consistently, I mean, one of the, for anybody that's been active in the pro-choice movement, it's been relentless. It's been absolutely relentless. The speed has picked up. The pace has picked up. Absolutely. No, let's be even more frank than that. The murders have worked. The bombings have worked. Because, yeah, Wendy Davis had her office firebomb, not because of this, what she did with the um, filibuster, but prior to that for her pro-choice activism. And not only that, but Wendy Davis's district was pre-cleared and Wendy Davis only retained her seat in the Texas legislature because of the Voting Rights Act. That was dismantled. Because Texas had to get pre-clearance from the federal government to change its voting districts and both the federal judge and then the Department of Justice determined that the way they redrew the districts was intentionally discriminatory against African-Americans and Hispanics. And I mean, the judge used language that was even more blatant and incredulous than that. Like, this guy was like, I can't fucking believe this. Are you kidding me? Is this really what you're trying to do? 
Like you have to do a better job of hiding this shit next time. And yet now Texas has moved ahead with that. So yeah, so she may not retain her seat. She may not retain her seat, but but frankly, I hope she runs for governor. Oh, I hope I, uh, she, or I hope she runs for national office. And even beyond that, I think what she did was so important just in the release of providing people, voiceless people, an outlet and helping them discover their voices and bring those voices together in one place for one specific moment to work within a political system for a political outcome. Even though the system was imperfect and even though the people, the bigoted assholes used the system against the people who were trying to argue for basic fairness, it was still important and crucial to show up. It was important to show up and be there when that shit was at stake, even if later on it's not going to go your way. And I, I think that's a lesson that needs to be taken absolutely everywhere in our political system, especially among the people who think that, quote unquote, occupying in and of itself is going to change things. I think the idea of the occupation can be a noble one, but it can only have effects in the political system if it acts in the political system. You can't act outside the political system and put the ideas into it that you want it to incorporate in the same way that not voting for a candidate or withholding your vote from a candidate isn't going to change his mind about an issue that you disagree with him on. It's not going to send the message that you would want to send that person. And you can't control how politicians are going to react with the story or the truth or the facts that you bring them, just as you can't control the outcome of how someone you have a political conversation with will change their mind and will participate or not participate. But I think it's everyone's obligation that is invested in any kind of positive outcome for that system existing to actually witness and fucking be there and fucking show up and tell other people. Well, you know, I mean, you, you can't change a system that you don't participate in. Exactly. Is is the bottom line, you know, and if that is what you're aiming to do, then you, you don't have a choice in your participation. And, and I think that's uniquely true now because the political circumstances of the time that we are in are so completely different than the circumstances of the time that came before us. Citizens United being a big one and that was a huge one we've had presidents you know in the past like theodore roosevelt you know often talked about a republican a republican yeah i can fucking get behind you know give me teddy roosevelt republicans for fuck's sake the guy the guy invented the progressive movement that was before the republican party was actually about having an american republic building a a federal government using the power of the people to combat the power of money to combat monopolistic tendencies of capitalist organizations like that's the kind of republicanism i could actually 
actually get behind. And that that republicanism is gone. But like I was thinking even broader than that in terms of the circumstances that have changed, because there was a time there was a quote unquote golden time in American society, the post World War Two baby boom that saw the largest expansion of a middle class and a mm-hmm. representative democracy that we've ever seen. One unfortunate part of that was that that middle class was confined to white people because the definition of what America meant and the definition of what love meant was very different then. But Americans could also be safe in the reasonable belief that their systems and the institutions that served them would actually serve them. It was a time when bipartisanship was possible because the Dixiecrats hadn't split off and left the Democratic Party because the civil rights era didn't happen yet. So one could reasonably expect that whether you voted for a Democrat or a Republican, that either one of those groups and those tribes would be affiliated with a set of principles that's generally pro-American, pro the idea that we're all in this together, in support of the idea that we take care of each other, but that we also have responsibilities to to ourselves and to our communities and a certain level of buy-in that all of us have. But again, one of the two major political parties of this country is now defined around a set of principles that holds primarily that profit is the ultimate motive, that greed in the short term is liberty, that and further that it's a zero-sum game this life, that any benefit you have will have to come at someone else's expense, and any benefit someone else gets will have to come at your expense at one level or another. When it's not necessarily so. That's the tragedy. I actually think that almost all zero-sum games are intentionally set up that way to benefit one set of players. Oh, absolutely. And I think we've seen that ripple across time in every group of humans that is ever socially bonded together. Like, this is one of my silly armchair sociological thoughts. But, like, I feel like there's always been this battle between the loud voice of fear and, like, the quiet voice of collective love and community and the, like, inherent social nature of humans. And I think we always need catalyzing events to make us react like I think we all are we are all ultimately reactionary and then at some level even when we're acting in a place of love a lot of time that can be a love that is only stoked in response to a scary thing happening but I also think that there are times when the people who are operating out of fear make it so clear that that's all they're doing and make it so clear that all they're looking out for is themselves that it then becomes the job of everyone else to react and to turn away and to turn it down and to shut it down and and grapple with it and challenge it the fact that it can hijack the emotion of people who could otherwise be reached, who could otherwise be empathized with, means that we foreclose on the possibility of making people's minds more open, of making people's lives better, of making people unlock the empathy that I think all people carry within themselves. And I mean, like the the saddest thing to me is watching the rhetoric of 
the, the rhetoric that like casually dehumanizes women become just so ingrained in our culture that it doesn't go challenge much like it, it still sickens me when on CNN, they still bring people from like focus on the family and as like counterbalanced to talk about the basic humanity of gay people. Like there is still so much poison and evil to, that we have to get out of the system. But I think the tools to call it out are also becoming clearer and becoming the language to discuss it is becoming more universal because I think that like the technologies that we do have, even though our systems aren't catching up with it, the technologies are far outpacing the ability of the system to cover up its own wrongdoing. I think to a degree that's absolutely true. Um, the one thing that I do think is that I don't think we're we still quite have that language down to counter it. I think part of it is because progressive people overestimate the importance of knowledge and underestimate the importance of emotional IQ and emotional relationships. Well, I think there is that, but one of take issues of racism. People are so invested in not being called a racist more so than not being racist. The result that their parents' generation experienced and underwent, and actually the result that Paula Deen's generation underwent when they were children, was they saw an American society that made it illegal for you to be an overt racist in public. The lesson that that generation of white America took from that was, oh, we can't do this in public anymore. Left undone was the hard moral work of challenging on an individual to individual and community to community basis the privilege that was still ingrained not just in white society but in all of American society and also to change the systems that were defined in the 20th century along these racist, sexist, homophobic hierarchies and economic hierarchies. It's a thing that we have to grapple with and I don't think that avoiding emotional connection and avoiding learning, like beefing up on our collective emotional IQ is going to work anymore. Liberals, specifically like movement liberalism, tried to completely sidestep that and tried to appeal to conservatives or appeal to quote unquote moderates or independents by chasing Republican ideas when really they were just adopting Republican fears and trying to minimize the bad end results of those fears in policy. But in the end, as we saw with all of Bill Clinton's attempts at triangulation, with him signing the Defense of Marriage Act, Act into law, yeah. signing Don't Ask, Don't Tell into law, signing the repeal of Glass-Steagall into law that removed the wall of separation between the gambling part of banks and the actual business part of banks that does good by people and invests in communities and safely keeps people's money and signing into law the deregulation of the media monopolies that allowed all of the like, yep. corporate takeovers that happened in Reagan's time to become an era of corporate mergers to where now five corporations control over 95 percent of all broadcast media we ever see it doesn't matter anymore which party is in power it doesn't matter anymore which team we support or play on if we don't change the mentality of the people who participate or should participate in the system. And if we can't relate to them in a way that supersedes 
the biases of theirs that can be hijacked. We can't control what those biases are because they grow up with so many of them. So, so much many. bullshit from so many different directions. I'm trying to come to a place in my life where I don't judge the people who do vote Republican for that decision, even with the pride they take in their ignorance and their use of ignorance as a cultural signifier of, of goodness or patriotism. Or pride. I have to incorporate that with my understanding of having grown up in the South and seen where those cycles of ignorance come from, how they're perpetuated by the people who you, you love and rely on the most the ways that people's tribe connects to their sense of self-identity and their sense of self. Again, I don't think that perpetually making fun of it or pretending that it's not there is going to work in the favor of the cause of making a society that is civilized and that respects all of its members and that is inclusive of everyone. And I think you can accomplish that goal that like principle of a, a better America from a conservative or a liberal standpoint. Like I would welcome an actual conservative party in this country that could argue against things like a perpetual fucking war machine all over the world under the guise of national security. I believe that that is not a conservative notion. No. It's not a Republican notion. It's not a Democratic notion. And yet that is the prevailing unquestioned position of every branch of the U.S. government right now. And I think this is a perfect segue, actually, into talking about the NSA leaks and the Edward Snowden story. This is an example of a zero-sum mentality taken by the government, a notion of a part of our government that they exist in combat against the American people against the American people's right to privacy, against the, uh, the American people's right to free association, uh, alongside these other strains in American politics that have been coming together or coming to a head or whatever you want to call it. Like we outlined earlier, that paranoid fringe of American society, that hyper-religious strand of American society has come to the forefront. I also think that alongside this, there has been a part of American society where an unquestioned military prominence and a military mindset about the way that America as a country and as an idea is supposed to work has really taken hold in this country. And it has intersections, of course, with all the things we're talking about, like from, from World War II and America's success in that to the massive public hiring that yes. World War II was that built up that military industrial complex, which did facilitate the baby boom. A lot of that growth in the post-war period was because of the economic growth the government undertook to win that war. But for decades now and through many successive administrations of Republican and Democratic origin, we've seen a security state develop itself, develop its own goals develop its own secret funding stream that is black boxed basically in the legislative language that it's put into mm -hmm. by our Congress that rubber stamps it every year. Also the privatization 
to a degree with companies like Blackwater and XE. That's been an end result of it. But let's start with that security state because part and parcel of the paranoid right-wing ascent into political prominence in America, alongside that has been a suspicion and a reliance on secrecy and intelligence gathering and that kind of like spycraft basically has become statecraft. Yes. Um, and I think a lot of things contributed to that as well. Again, like mm-hmm. World War Two, um, I think the the use the Cold the, War, the creation of the nuclear bomb, but mm-hmm. also America's use of the nuclear bomb set that fear of global annihilation into people so much that spycraft became the way to pacify people's fears, but also the way to advance goals short of any armed conflict that could escalate to mutually assured destruction. We saw the ascent of that spy state. Mm hmm. After World War II, we saw what that became in the hands of ideologues like Joe McCarthy. Mm -hmm. And we see that same tendency coming out now in today's Republican Party. But on the secret edge of that, we've seen in America's executive branch a concentration, an expansion in ways organic and not of the power of the president and the people on his team to make all decisions about America's war policy, including funding, including what wars should be fought and should not be fought. On one level, I can understand. There's an expedience to that. Exactly. The specific expedience was that Congress fucking gave up. Congress gave up their war power and specifically their power over the purse to be able to say, we're not going to spend another dime on your stupid fucking war. America's not going to win this. Mm-hmm. Let us stop this war. Congress gave in to whatever propaganda or money from defense contractors was coming their way and made the expedient decision to give up their power within the system, such as it was. The president is still the commander in chief, and I have my disagreements with that, but that's a constitutional thing. But it has become a scenario where he's not just the commander in chief, he is the commander-in-chief subservient to what the people in the military want him to do. And those people in the military are themselves subservient to what the private contractors who get multi-billion dollar contracts want and what they are building and what they want to sell. We live in a unique set of circumstances because we're at the tail end of over 60 years of Cold War overclassification of the things that America's government and specifically its executive branch determine are too secret for public consumption. Yeah. Yeah. Us dirty plebes to get a look at and make no mistake. I'm sure all kinds of statecraft, just like any relationship depends on not saying some things and not knowing some things. But when as an institution, You make it a principle to keep all things secret at all times. That's an erosion of trust. There's an amount of trust that you cannot demand of people. There's an amount of trust that it would be a step into blind faith to give to a system or an institution that has as its operating principle keeping everything secret. When the people 
behind that system who get to not only operate within it and use its powers, but get to determine those powers and get to determine how secret those powers are, then say that their goal is the safety of Americans. President Obama has actually said at multiple points, and I agree with him in a lot of things, but this statement sent a chill down my spine. He said that his primary obligation was the safety of the American people. That's not true. That is not what he is constitutionally bound and obligated and sworn to do. His oath is to uphold the Constitution and protect the United States and its allies against all enemies, foreign and domestic. It's not to protect the safety or the security of all American citizens. In the, in the Declaration of Independence, the three main principles are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Yes, not they protection not. from ourselves. Or right, they are not protection from ourselves, protection from our own ideas, protection from beliefs, not protection from criticism, protection from embarrassment. They are not protection from being caught in your lie as someone with power. Even if I don't believe that President Barack Obama is the kind of president who will execute his secret, unchecked, unaccountable authority in a way that I will find abhorrent, even if I didn't find some of his uses abhorrent, I still have great problems with his ability to have that authority, his ability to keep that authority secret from the citizens who voted for him. Because, you know, that secrecy is the biggest hurdle against any countering any measures of abuse. Not only that, it's also the biggest inoculation against accountability because we literally can't know whether the tactics that are being used are succeeding in keeping us safe. Yes. Part of that is always going to be that you can't prove a counterfactual. You have to grant that if you're approaching this issue seriously. You're never going to stand on the other side of a national security issue and say, oh, well, America would be completely safe at all times mm -hmm. if we didn't have a massive spy machine with the cooperation of all of the massive multinational media conglomerates in spying on all American citizens and all their communications. But we live in a system where that's the case now. And like that's, that's becoming more, in, and, and technology is making that more and more accessible. And, and more and more apparent. Yeah. It's showing us the contours of where that surveillance is taking place. Our species is in feedback loops and wrapped in technologies that are revealing humanity to itself at ever increasing rates and in ever deepening and widening ways. And it's going to be very scary because we have had a government that has been spying on its citizens for as long as governments and as long as this government have existed. In fact, non-white people in America have been viewed as suspects before they were accused of any crimes in America. America for the entire history of American history. But it's only now that even white people are coming to understand that they're presumed suspects, that they aren't going to get a fair trial, that the justice system is two-tiered and they're not in the tier that will get equal justice and fair justice, that the deck is, is stacked against them. Now, people are realizing and will be forced to realize increasingly that the struggle we have is a shared one. And it's not identical. It's not an identical struggle to everyone because, again, the groups that have been struggling the whole time have been struggling the whole fucking time. And 
part of lifting that veil for the people who had have had the presumption of Amer- full American citizenship and who have had the presumption of full innocence. It's oblig- it's our obligation to also remove the veil of privilege that allowed us to to presume that all other people mm-hmm. have been viewed as just as American and just as equal as us. And we're now just getting the raw deal. When in reality, it's that now the evil that's being done is so pervasive that we're all the targets of it. We're all open season. Even there, you know, like, for example, the Boston bombing, there was an active move to, you know, start othering them immediately. Oh, no, they're not Caucasian. You know, like the the cover photo. Even though they were literally Caucasian. Caucasian. Yes, like literally Caucasus Mountain. But, you know, like the art depictions of them suddenly not having, you know, pale but brown skin and the emphasis of their religion. It's in the moments, both where there's the greatest chance of the dark extreme surfacing and the greatest chance of the positive extreme, the radical goodness coming to the surface as well. It's those catalyzing events that force a reaction. The economy collapses or whites become a numerical minority in the country. The nature of all things is change. And the size of that change at a certain point becomes so great and the tide of the smaller changes add up to such big waves that all of us have to start swimming and we all have to start swimming together. But part of that process is going to be reckoning with the fact that not everyone we have to bring along with us is going to be ready, is going to be able to understand the shared aspect of what's going wrong and the ways that they will misunderstand the universality of what we're up against and their own stakes in joining the rest of us will break down along those same old lines of the old knowledge that they have, the old, the dead people's baggage that they have not gotten rid of. So like, that's why for me, it becomes such a question of actively engaging people with the systems that we have, but also the creativity of expression that we can have, that we still have. That's one fucking part of the Constitution that hasn't been completely destroyed. But our ability to express our ideas in creative ways that get past people's biases or allow or or force people to challenge them Mm -hmm. both has its greatest potential and its greatest potential for abuse within a set of circumstances that is as kind of corrupt and as treacherous as we're in right now. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it feels like a major crossroads. It really does. History is always happening. But I think another consequence of the technology that we've got and the instantaneity, like the instantaneous nature of the communication technology that we have makes it easier for the crazy people to get together and collaborate. And it also, again, makes it easier for the crazy in a good way people to get together and collaborate. I might be being completely naive about it, but I don't subscribe to the zero-sum model of the universe that Reaganomics and my programming from my birth wanted to teach me, wanted me to believe. I don't believe that there is some set number of people in this world who are born destined to be stupid or who are born destined to vote against their own self-interest or alternately who are born destined to 
have positive constructive beliefs like i i feel now, that these these things are absolutely not destiny they're not genetic and they're not static they're so dynamic that's why the systems that we have with this technology currently like twitter or whatever still seems so limited to me not just in the ways that they let you express but also in the sense that these are still systems that facilitate our fear that facilitate our law of the jungle approach, our zero-sum thinking. The systems and communities that exist in the internet now, because it's still in its infancy, are still more like an immature human. And... It's still forming. Yeah. Well, I think the it that we're talking about is a collective consciousness. I, I think there's always been one that... Well, it's been so limited in scope before you know i mean we didn't have that one global instantaneous connection well and and that's a huge part because you know in order for us you know 20 years ago to meet somebody from overseas and to talk to people from overseas took a fair amount of effort you know and now you don't even have to talk to them you can just look at Twitter and just start, you know, reading what, you know, people from all corners of the world that have internet access are thinking about, are talking about. You have access to local news in foreign countries. You have access to news from all over the world that, again, like prior... You have access to news in places that don't have, quote unquote, the news. Yes. It's disruptive. There's that paradox, and I think it's a paradox you have to learn not only to have a successful life as an individual, but in order to be a part of a greater whole and a good part of a community. You can't control what is going to happen to you, and you can't control the circumstances that you're going to inherit. You can only control what you do with the people who were there with you and what you do in response, how you react. You know, and you have to grapple with that to be successful as an individual when you're navigating problems that life throws at you. And you also have to be able to react to it in a sane and inclusive and respectful way in order to have a civilized society. But there's also an aspect of this disruptive technology that enables people to justify their lazy thinking, enables people to regurgitate their old disproven thoughts as new knowledge there's also an effect of that technology that's disruptive to the old power relationships yes so bringing it back to the surveillance state mm -hmm. we're all going to learn that we've all been spied on for a very long time and that terror and terrorism and terrorists have been with us and among us and have come from us and come in response to our actions before the surveillance state. They've come out and during the surveillance state. They will be with us even if we get rid of the surveillance state. There have been horrible terrorist acts and attacks that have happened to America for which the spy state was in place. Even President Clinton was using unmanned drones to try to find Osama bin Laden. Um, George W. Bush, President W., was the first to use unmanned armed drones to kill people. They're still operated by people. But, you know, that could but, change. But we have this leaker. 
mm-hmm. Edward Snowden, a relatively young white man who claims that he was paid six figures by Booz Allen Hamilton, which is a lobbying and what is it like aerospace security. It's basically one of the giant mega corporations that uh, gets paid by our government to help spy on us all. And at this point, it's actually still unclear just what the fuck Edward Snowden was doing for his job because he's been very coy about it. Despite the fact that he's literally claiming the opposite of this, he has very much made the story about himself and about Edward Snowden's adventures in globetrotting. And as entertaining as the Snowden globetrotters (laughs) are as a completely inept basketball team of white guys who could not dribble if they tried to, um, I just imagine Edward Snowden trying, like, trying to spin the basketball in his finger like the Harlem Globetrotters do and just like accidentally punching himself in the face or something. But it's a problem in and of itself that we're not having a conversation about the fact that the security state is not new. Yeah. The, the people responsible for that security state and the people profiting from continuing it mm-hmm. are like holding that veil down, like trying to paper clip it to all the other veils, like trying to make sure that we do not realize how pervasive it is and how much it limits our imaginations of what it means to be a decent, a decent citizen and what it means to have an effective government. Well, and it's also, I mean, like, you know, there's, there's two parts to the, the whistleblowing case with Snowden. One is that, you know, prior, you know, one is one of technology of prior to this point, you know, you actually had people having to man and look at data and, and search for data versus now we have the technology of, you know, just collecting mass amounts of data and just doing very simple, quick moves to get a huge amount of information on somebody that actually took a lot of people people and a lot of man hours to do before it existed it's just the expedience and efficiency has increased so much so one of the big questions is what does that mean how does you know and all the impacts of that um you know i mean the other issue is always you know the question of like how we've all you know as a society like we've never dealt with whistleblowing well any change bringer or anyone that's trying to for good or bad people can bring about positive change with you know very selfish intentions i'm not concerned so much about the intention of the whistleblower but what information do they have and what does that mean yes and so i mean like the part of snowden's leaks that has been instructive is putting a little bit of a little bit slightly more detail onto the skeleton of what we see as the body of the surveillance state yeah and how it's used most uh, literally most of what snowden has quote unquote revealed was actually talked about in books as far back as 2002 2004 2007 and really not all that much of it is new which again i think goes back to glenn greenwald's uh power as a blogger with a cult of personality to get uh a what seems like a hot Mm -hmm. scoop that embarrasses someone in power and like that's his stock and trade so i think part of and also like a lot of mainstream organizations are always looking for the 
the uh, the story of a president in turmoil, mm-hmm. which has been a, th- a theme that we've tried to pin on President Obama this year with the IRS. And Benghazi. And Benghazi and all kinds of fake things. But the real effect that that all has is to obscure the extent to which we've entrusted our government to spend unlimited amounts of money spying on us for the sake of a principle of safety that isn't even promised to us. Or that it, well, you know, one of the issues, the concept of safety, like, you know, what is the concept of safety? What is the concept of community? And a lot of times, you know, what ends up happening with a surveillance state runs counter to safety. You know, we now start having citizens that don't trust each other. It becomes destabilizing. It becomes incredibly destabilizing versus, you know, trying to you know, build trust and and build community. It's a lot of work. It requires people to go out and not be lazy. It requires people to go out and talk to others, get involved in their communities. And one of the issues that we're seeing in so many different ways is as participants of society, so many people have checked out. Well, and, and not just there aren't just the ones that have checked out. The other iteration of that is the people whose only understanding of politics is as a tribal sport where they win by being the most angry and irrational people in the room. Both of those groups of people are going to need to be engaged. Like we're they're yes. all going to again, if we're going to have a more inclusive idea of what it means to be American, we're going to have to reckon with the notion of people who view things very differently than us. But we also have to develop the space for political conversation that doesn't derive its winners and losers from how irrational and bigoted you can be or just simply how loud you can be of right. how much you can just shout down somebody right exactly and and it's in my view it's more difficult to open that space up for the kinds of conversations that can build trust within societies and between the governed and the government if your priority is secrecy yes if you're if your stated moral principle is an illusion like safety because an illusion like safety can invoke love but at its core it's about fear it's about avoidance and americans have always been amazing at finding avoidance mechanisms and at finding half measures to try to sweep something under the rug or to try to like you said, believe that we have moved on from something when really we haven't moved on from shit. When really the past isn't even past. It's with us right now when the same old fears are capitalized on in the same old ways with a new generation of people. Um, I think part of that, part of the reason why you see that you know, striking aspect in American society and American culture too. And not to say that other countries don't have it because they also have it, you know, as well. But it seems incredibly striking here. And I think part of that is because the United States is an unusual circumstance of an incredibly new nation that has rose to prominence in such a rapid time, you know. And I think we're also a country where, you know, we've never been invaded. New York, LA, 
LA, Chicago, like it's not like they were bombed to right. rubbles, you right. know, firebomb, you know, atomic bomb, what what have you. You know, we as a nation have not ever had to start from ground zero that we had this ability from, you know, when the the settlers came to the United States to this point now, which is our modern history, because we've had history before then as well. But the modern government, as we've known it for the last 200 and some years, have been able to go and flourish and continue without right. destruction of the home base. And I think that's an incredibly important part of understanding the ability to sweep things under is because we've had things to sweep things under that some countries <laughs> we were able to buy those nice rugs to sweep things our under little concerns that under. that some yeah. countries didn't have you know i mean when when your entire infrastructure is gone you know when you have to build you know entire cities not just sections, but entire cities and, and, and various of them, you know, there is a certain level of conversations that have to start happening. Right. And it's it's just illustrative because we now have a Congress. I mean, we the, the Senate passed immigration reform. It seems unlikely that John Boehner is even going to bring it up for a vote in the House. And even if he does, unless he s- suspends a an arbitrary and imaginary rule called the Hastert rule that demands majority Republican support for anything that goes up for a vote in the House. It's literally not a rule written anywhere. But John Boehner is holding himself to and being held to this imaginary Hastert rule by the Tea Party Republican Caucus. We have a Congress that is supposedly going to reimagine immigration policy for the 21st century, but can't pass the farm bill. Mm-hmm. What the farm bill actually was, was exactly like we were just describing. It was a way to sweep a lot of things under the same rug. <laughs> or to use another commonly invoked metaphor for Congress, it was one incongruous legislative sausage. A mix of subsidies for the biggest agricultural companies and food corporations and conglomerates that exist in the world, but that operate and do business in America. It's also the way that we feed the poorest people in this country through the use of subsidies, through subsidized nutrition, Mm -hmm. the SNAP program, also the The women and children program that provides single mothers with Mm -hmm. food to feed their children and themselves. Um, It's the way that the last version of America's Congress was able to form the coalition necessary to feed the beast and get all of the agricultural state people from both parties reelected to their jobs and also to build the coalition to keep the most in danger American citizens from literally starving to death. And I, one of the most, you know, foundational social safety nets food you know access to food it's so much more elemental than just a safety net thing because i feel like we use the term social safety net and that immediately sounds like this kind of bureaucratic term for me it goes to the core of what it means to form a community yes 
the bonds of a society and a community are not just the people who you sit next to. They're the people you live and work with. They're the people you eat with. They're the people who hundreds and thousands or millions of years ago you would have hunted with. They're the people upon whom you know at some level you rely and upon whom you know they rely for your nourishment, for your sustenance, for your flourishing. To me, it's a it's not just a denial of a specific funding stream for a specific government program that was passed by some previous Congress decades ago. For me, it goes to the core of what these Republicans show they believe about what we owe to each other. Which is very little. It's fuck you, give me yours. They're not really asking. <laughs> I think yeah, the if- asking is a formality, really? <laughs> They're gonna take, take it. it. Yeah, that's the that's, that's the-, the way that bullies operate. <laughs> they might do that fun, clever bit where they say, hey, you got any lunch money? <laughs> But you know they're going to be wailing on you regardless because it's not about the money. Mm-hmm. It's about the power. And they're going to exert their power over you. And anything else that they do beyond that is just fucking with their prey before they eat it. Well, I mean, that that has been that political trajectory that we're seeing on the big stage of, you know, a lot of what's happening is political bullying. Yes, and it's political bullying that makes for wonderful political theater, which is what our politics is now. It's like this tribal theater. Mm, with Soap opera. With uglier players. Yeah, yeah, again, <laughs> with uglier actors. Much uglier actors. You know, I mean, Boehner provides all the crying. Right. Part of that is just the human narrative faculty. And that's a gift. That's a thing that we should never look down upon. The ability to make a story, I think that's what makes us special as a species. I think it's what enabled us to convince each other to band together to defeat the predators that we had, to keep out the darkness, to flourish and think of longer lives and think of ways that we could better feed ourselves to lead longer lives. I feel like our storytelling aspect is what holds us apart from other animals, but it carries within it the ability to organize us for good or to organize us for evil. The wicked have their motives thoroughly on display now because the stories they're telling are so blatant now that you can't even, you can't look at it and not realize it for what it is. But we have to set about telling the stories of love and empathy and community and connection and sharing and all of those good things, because those are quantities that we know we can create in this world that previous versions of humans, previous generations of Americans have created. Now, the previous generations of Americans who did it, did it along the shape of their biases. They did it along the shape of the old knowledge and the old bigotry that they had. And that's always going to be the case. And we still have, again, we will still carry that with us and still have to be unlearning and revising it the whole way. But it's always possible to do. It's always possible to learn better, to know better. And it's always possible to do better with that knowledge. You just actually, you just have to actually believe in that as a goal and believe it worthwhile enough to try to work with people who are not on the same level, to try to work with people who carry baggage with them that they don't even know they're carrying. 
we also have to grapple with the fact that now that we've inherited this set of institutions, the old tactics like the farm bill that used to work make up for the partisanship games and the partisan warfare, those tactics don't work anymore. Those institutions aren't able to form those coalitions anymore. And further, the people like Harry Reid in the Senate who refused to actually reform the filibuster when he had the chance should be an example to everyone of how possible it is to get that Stockholm syndrome about being bullied even yeah. if you are a very powerful person in a position where you can make a difference. There's an aspect of evil and of evil that assumes a place of, of moral high ground that it becomes difficult to, within the system, stand up against it. Mm-hmm. Because the people who, ha- are, who are perceived within the system as being powerful and people who are the group of people who are perceived as having the high ground, like for instance, the tea party did in 2010, it's hard to stand up to that, but it's necessary. And when you don't stand against it, you are doing the work of the people who are trying to literally dismantle the entire system. Like I, I condemn Snowden for putting himself in a position where the story would become about him for not staying in America and facing justice in a court of law or at least trying to, and then going to the media and being as loud as he possibly can if for some reason the government tries to sell him short on the justice that he would be provided. I respect the whistleblowing impulse, but in light of Snowden also detailing America's relationships with China and other countries, I think it's clear that Snowden doesn't give a fuck about the greater good of America and doesn't want our government to be able to operate with other countries and have decent relations with the other countries of the world. So I have a problem with him in that sense. I have a much deeper and residing loathing for people who are powerful, like Harry Reid, who have the opportunity for action, who have or had at least the votes, which are 50 votes plus the vice president, which is the constitutional definition of a majority vote in the U.S. Senate, had the chance, the opportunity and the mechanism to affect change. And they stood down. They chose not to. And it's clear that Harry Reid did it out of loyalty to an institution that he's been a part of for a very, very long time. But he is so stuck in that old old way of thinking, in the practices and the congeniality mm-hmm. of that 20th century Senate that he does not, even when he says otherwise on the Senate floor, mar- remarking about how much it changes, he is not willing to lift a finger to actually move to change it. It, I find that more sad than the breach of loyalty or whatever that Edward Snowden had. Because, I mean, Edward Snowden, let's face it, was a private contractor. He was working, whatever he was doing, it was for a private company whose real motive was the profit of the private company. Mm-hmm. Like it or not, and I don't like it, like part of the security state that I think is the most corrosive to our democracy and again makes me unable to trust it is the fact that over a million 
people in America who work for private companies have top secret security clearance. We give that secrecy out to the highest bidder and entrust those same companies to do the work that should be done by qualified government people for us. That have more accountability. That supposedly have more gov- more accountability within the system. But it does the work of the people who argue against having a system in the first place. The Ayn Rand libertarianism argument to say, well, I'm in the system and I'm so attached that the way the system used to be that, you know, I could change the system now, but I'm not going to. We're going to enter a gentleman's agreement with the bullies. (laughs) And Harry Reid entered into a gentleman's agreement with Mitch McConnell in the Senate GOP minority at the start of this this Senate session. The Republicans promised pinky swear that they would filibuster less and that they would not hold up all the cabinet nominees that Obama is putting forward for his second term. They, of course, have gone back on every single one of those fucking gentlemen's agreements, just as well, they had every single, single time. time. That, that was the thing is that, you know, you can't, I mean, at a certain point, you know, if you're hitting yourself, you have to stop. That sometimes feels like what's going on with the Democratic Party. And and that's also, I mean, you know, I, I've always felt like senators should have, you know, much more rapid term limits for that reason. This is where I see the idea of term limits going against or potentially threatening really progressive change. That takes time to learn the institution. It takes time to understand how fucked up it is. That said... I think the real solution, unfortunately, is not when you can legislate. It's bravery, because what's needed is a groundswell of enough senators from all parties who recognize that the 24-7-365 suck-and-fuck-fest for money (laughs) that is America's election system has made it impossible for our political system to work. The fact that any Republican seen voting for immigration in any form will be primaried goes against them in the system. That's they have every incentive in their electoral politics to ruin this chance in immigration reform. Absolutely. They have every incentive to go against women's health choices because it flares up the aggrieved right-wing white base of people who are their only chance at electoral success anymore. Term limits could very easily eliminate people who are not just dedicated to the institutional norms that they inherited, but dedicated to the idea of the priority being a functioning institution. Yeah. And... That's not to say that I believe that all technocratic candidates are good, too, because no. I feel like the technocracy is very dangerous and can be very anti-democratic as well and very conservative, just as I, I think like a lot of the Obama approach is technocratic. A lot of the Clinton approach to politics is technocratic. Mm-hmm. And I think way too much of that tries to square circles and, again, like be right wing for the sake of trying to appease people who will not be appeased. But I think the solution in the Senate or the only way that forward motion will happen is when those rules change, when the actual constitutional arrangement of 50 votes plus one by vice president exists in the Senate capacity as a tie breaking vote. 
That's mm-hmm. the only reason the vice president is mentioned as the president of the damn Senate, is to break ties. And if the intent of the founding fathers, in all of their wisdom and their drafting of the Constitution, was to make a supermajority requirement like existed in the Articles of Confederation in their legislature, they would have required 60 votes and they wouldn't have defined the vice president as the guy who comes to break ties because there wouldn't ever be numerical ties. That said, I think the actual, the the biggest impediment to members of either party who are elected to high office successfully doing their jobs and successfully being conservative or successfully being liberal and arguing for legitimate and possibly progressive policies from those perspectives is money in politics. I, I think Americans have this distant understanding that, oh, politicians are all bought and paid for, but we still have allowed the secrecy and the evasion of yeah. direct responsibility and linking and the lack all those of transparencies. Yeah. Yes. The, the vehicles of like mm-hmm. 501c3s yeah. and the super PACs and Citizens United, ironically, in the same way that they have allowed the people who really fund our politics to obscure their funding, the rise of unaccountable money groups is putting out there. This is still a cloud, but it's a $1.5 billion cloud. We know that Sheldon Adelson put however many billions of dollars in this part of the cloud and mm-hmm. the Koch brothers paid this amount into it. The actions that are being taken by the people who profit from the brokenness of the system have the silver lining and have the benefit of revealing to us the depth of how broken it is. And so in that way, it can also reveal the opportunities for changing it. Because I I refuse to give up hope. I would only give up hope about it if no information were being revealed. If I felt that no understanding could be reached. Even if like the, the NSA leaks, for instance, kind of reveal the scope and the depth of the government collecting all of the metadata that's left by our movements throughout this digital world, even if I don't believe his leaks, they're at least broadening people's understanding and they're causing slightly more outrage. And I definitely believe there's a group among the outraged who are selectively very outraged now because these things are happening under a black president. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that can be ignored or minimized. It needs to be recognized and reckoned with and understood well, I mean, there was a his, you know, I mean, people always conveniently forget the history that, you know, this didn't start under Obama. Right. And that's where that's that's where I think the rage is misplaced. Yes. You know, because it's like I can understand people that are upset at President Obama that are also upset at, you know, former President Bush that are, you know, upset at former President right, people Clinton. people who paid attention to yes. politics beyond when the black guy got elected. Yes. Yeah. That, you know, that have a stream of objection that has stayed consistent. The former Southerner in me also recognizes that you can't dictate when someone is going to come to a greater understanding of the facts and the way in which someone's going to come to realize they've been screwed over. And it's important to recognize you've been screwed over it like just as part of 
your life and being able to ensure your survival, whether or not you have a full understanding of everyone else's suffering. But going back to the fact that this struggle is a struggle that nearly all of us are a part of now, whether we know it or not, it's so important now that more people come to recognize that struggle that I feel that people are going to have to learn how to deal with the folks who do come late to it and who do come with prejudices or blind spots or privilege that has been unexamined. And I mean, it's still it always needs to be called out mm-hmm. because if the if the goal oh, is to be more inclusive absolutely. and to secure the idea of life, liberty and happiness for every individual person who is an American citizen, if you want to approach it from the libertarian side, then you need to come to a full reckoning of the fact that not everyone was born on the same field of play. Not everyone was born into the same game. Not everyone was born with the same resources and gifts. And moving forward requires people coming to a greater understanding. That should be the goal and not just any particular like electoral outcome. Because I, I think a lot of the people who are reflexively Obama defenders, and in many ways I am one of those myself because I think many, if not most of the things he's blamed for are actually the fault of a completely broken Congress. A lot of people are kind of reflexively defending him and the executive branch. And what I came to realize during Bush's era, but what has just been confirmed over and over during Obama's is that no president will unilaterally give up power Power. that they inherit. Any president, all presidents will use the powers they are given. You have the systems that you are given. And not only that, but it's the system they campaign for, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's one that they want to be using. Yes. The only way to rein that system in is through a check through another system. Our Supreme Court is not going to be a good mechanism for being that check. It doesn't have our interests in mind. It's got the interests of the 1% in mind. And there have been Supreme Courts in the past who had those, Mm -hmm. who protected the robber barons. But it's going to require us to hopefully bring the systems we have in for a softer landing, but also reckon with what the system, what the reality of these systems has been, Mm -hmm. what their real priorities have been, what they've actually been spending all this money doing every year that they don't want to tell us about, that they don't want to account for. Because now they want to account for every single dollar they set aside for the worst off among us, for the people who are literally on the verge of death without our assistance. They want to count every single fucking cent that goes out to help those people. Yet when it comes to interest-free loans at the Federal Reserve, contracts to build aircraft carriers and tanks that the military doesn't fucking want anymore, contracts to private prison companies to privatize what were public prisons if they ensure an 88% occupancy rate for their prison beds. When it comes to privatizing public schools and the promise of a public education for all citizens, I think there are a lot of aspects and a lot of evil things that are done in our system that 
people who call themselves Republican or Democratic would naturally rebel against and would be disgusted the way that all humans of conscience would react if they could be made to understand what's really going on. And further, if they could be made to understand that the people who profit from what's really going on are the same people who sell them the same lines of bullshit to get them to vote against making any of it better. Very true. But, you know, I mean, part of that issue is that we have such a broken system of getting, you know, any good discussions across on a mass and public level through our media because our media is broken. It's for profit and it's about controversy. Yes. And and it's about headlines and it's about marketing. Yes. Getting the largest part of the tiniest sliver of the media pie because everything is so fragmented now and segmented. You also don't, you know, one of the things that I've seen change in the media is when I was younger, back in the 80s, you know, you actually had people spend a fair amount of time talking about an issue. And now we move from one topic to another topic so much more rapidly. Well, and we kind of veer from catastrophe to catastrophe without taking any longer view of the possibility that our actions might have contributed to that catastrophe. Or even if they couldn't have prevented this catastrophe, they might forestall or prevent one later on. Yeah. You know, and it what it does is it decouples the idea that our choices have consequences in our lifetimes and in our world and for us and our fellow man. And that's the result of the broken systems in the media. It's the result of a broken system in Congress. It's the result of a broken electoral system. And it's also part of, you know, with now education being, you know, a testing system. Right. It delinks the concept of knowledge from the concept of being an actualized, fully realized human. It decouples, like, critical thinking from knowledge and makes knowledge a rote game of repetition and regurgitation. And actually, it's actually a kind of consumption in and of itself. itself. Um, you know, and so with with all these, you know, broken systems that we're dealing with, I mean, it's these are these this is a fairly, you know, enormous storm that's come together in a lot of ways you know because one of the aspects of the technology revolution and the information you know the the access to information is that access is only so good if you know what to do with the information if you can make judgments on the information that's coming towards you that's so wonderful and it like that in and of itself is such an indictment of the mindset of the security state they've built these multi-bajillion dollar data centers data collection centers, like basically warehouses and bunkers of servers and servers to collect all the data. Just give me all the data. And I'm a photo archivist by profession. And I know how difficult it is to know what to search for. It's a specialized kind of knowledge and it's a a knowledge that requires intuition and successfully doing it depends on some level of mastery over every bit of data in the system. And if you feed the system endless data and don't have even more rigorous ways of sorting, sifting, getting rid of bad data, sniffing out 
untrustworthy sources of data, then you can land yourself an endless vista of haystacks and no fucking tools to find the needles. None. Yeah, none. And and again, for all you and I know, the government might have extraordinarily rigorous peer-reviewed, uh, industry-approved standards for that data. Unlikely, but yeah. <laughs> I don't believe it for a second, okay. but even if they are, I can't know that in order to trust them because the main principle they're operating out of, the main mechanism they're using is secrecy. Again, like I have that intimate understanding that exactly as you put it, the amount of information can be meaningless or even counterproductive to the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of real understanding. And the only thing that allows you to not take the actions as a group of people that even if they don't directly result in terrorism, certainly set people on the path to becoming terrorists the only way you take what little steps you can take to prevent that from happening is through increasing knowledge and understanding of people. It's not through unilaterally and unaccountably gathering all information about all people. That is not the same as knowledge. Data mining. Yeah, it's data mining. That can work very well for a private sector oh, absolutely. whose only goal is predicting very predictable consumption patterns like mm -hmm. spending, but it can't always predict the actions we undertake from our most core beliefs. I'm of the belief that there are some acts of terrorism you can't prevent. There are some acts yes. of horror and violence in this world that you can't prevent, that you cannot prevent. That is not the same as saying that you shouldn't try to prevent them. Yes. But if you're interested in actually trying to prevent the horrible things that could be prevented, you have to increase knowledge and understanding of the factors that go into creating those events. And if all you do is increase the information and you don't get buy-in from the people who are part of your system, whose information you have and have control over, it's an absolutely unsustainable secret government. It's a secret it's a, government. Yes, and it's also it's also not, you know, it's not even a practical and functional one. Right, to the extent that massive data collection in the past could be facilitated just by buying more warehouses or just by buying more servers, the ingenuity will always outpace the technology. We have to connect with an idea of security that goes beyond a perpetual panic and suspicion of all other people. Like for me, a less shitty America is an America where not all citizens are taught to be always afraid of each other everywhere they go, taught that the only way they can be secure in their personal possessions or their self their sense of self is like with a gun or with a with a by voting for a politician who's willing to go to war and wave his big American dick by launching bombs like we have to evolve our sense of what it means to be secure because right now it's so infantile that it puts the lie to our democracy and 
covers up its own tracks in the process of doing so. Well, I mean, one of the biggest aspects, I think, of trying to get people to engage and trying to get people to better understand each other, because what we're fundamentally asking people to do in a lot of these cases, you know, whether it's spread a loving idea, whether it's, you know, spreading these seeds of awareness, is a lot of times we're asking people to dissent. Oh, yeah. They're asking people to dissent. And dissent is an incredibly lonely position. A lot Again, of times. Exactly. Going back to the systemic aspect of it. You know, I mean, whether, you know, and, and that dissent could be for selfish reasons. That's why, you know, my, my feeling with whistleblowing has always been that your intentions aren't my interest. You know, it's the it's the what it's what information is coming out and what that well, means. Well, sure, and for me, there's also the semantic game played by using the word whistleblower as opposed to like leaker. Mm-hmm. Like whistleblower having a, an inherently positive connotation in my mind, like blowing the whistle on wrongdoing. But I totally, yeah, I see your point. You know, but and and a lot of times, you know, because a lot of times helplessness comes from a sense of dependence, and a lot of systems foster that feelings of helplessness, helplessness and also feelings of dependence yes and use both and in influence people using both to serve ideals that those people don't necessarily know they've bought into yes and one of the biggest things about not information but knowledge is that it allows you to be independent that it gives you the tools you know when you speak up for something and you get a certain reaction to you know be able to talk to yourself and talk to your emotions and and deal with them in various ways that you wouldn't you know, and, and now with the advent of the internet and technology and access to meeting people, like, we now have a system that also makes dissent easier. Because you can connect to like-minded people. I mean, you know, 40 years ago, you know, if you're the only person in your small town that's saying, hey, I think this is a really bad idea. I mean, you know, the effort that we would... You, are, you are the town pariah, <laughs> but like literally the town pariah, and they would literally ride you out on a rail. You know, and, and even if they didn't ride you out on a rail, <laughs> I mean, for you to be able to find, you know, somebody in the next town, like you would have to drive and talk to a bunch of people, you know, and then that person has to be willing to out themselves to talk to you and that process was much more complex and now it's getting so much easier to find like-minded people to to you know be able to discuss and talk about and well and not only discuss but again like going going back to the other thing we've been talking about is like to be able to trust someone even not if you're completely abandoning your old presumptions and biases about people the willingness to suspend your disbelief in someone else's worthiness or integrity or any of that for the sake of some better goal. Like, I feel like 
the corrosive effect of the money in politics and of the money dominating the way that we discuss politics has allowed talk of principles and of what underlying like first principles are and allowed us to remove that from our politics and make politics this very antiseptic but at the same time horrible discussion about like bad manners and like smack talk which is really what beltway politics boils down to is like people who feel they've been fucking socially wronged in one way or another by their fellow colleagues (laughs) like it's it's so fucking high school it so easily facilitates the removal of principles from the discussion but i think i think that that's a place we will be able to use our technologies to recognize the shared aspect of our struggle and to unite around things that will enable us to change the broken systems if we hold like the principle of inclusiveness yes. as as part of it as like the guy as one of the first bedrock foundational aspects of our cause and One of the last things up on the list of (laughs) topics for the day on our dizzying array of spectacle for this (laughs) evening is what's happening in Egypt. A couple years ago, we in America got to bear witness to a continent-wide series of revolutions that were themselves enabled by all this new technology, by this instantaneous connection, allowing people to form new communities and new uprising where there was none and where there was no sense of solidarity before. One of those places was Egypt. And the result of the Arab Spring, as it was so-called, coming to Egypt was the removal of Hosni Mubarak, who was the, I don't know if he was the American puppet, but he was a dictator and a horrible person who put the lie to all of the promises of freedom Egypt made and made a shame of the proud tradition of dictators that Egypt has had throughout the centuries and millennia. So they got rid of the dictator and in his place was an election. They had their Mm -hmm. first quote-unquote democratic elections. But the rulers of the country in the time after the awakening and the deposal of Mubarak, the rulers of the country were the military, were the Revolutionary Guard, or the and, Republican Guard, yes. I'm sorry. And that that's, you know, I mean, that, that tradition to a day is still continuing there because of the removal of um, Morsi was a military move. I'm certainly not an expert on Egyptian politics or history, but the group that came to power amid the power vacuum left by Mubarak leaving and left by an Egypt without a constitution was the Muslim Brotherhood. The person chosen to be the leader um, on behalf of the Muslim Brotherhood, but who ran and won the election for the presidency, was Mohamed Morsi. Um, and he was actually American educated. Mm-hmm. I believe his children are American citizens, and they're also American educated. Yeah, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I definitely think that's true. He also taught, I believe, at UCLA. I think he did teach at UCLA, actually. Which <laughs> <laughs> is so surreal. That's the modern world for you. It's possible for even a UCLA grad to become a dictator. <laughs> Who'd have thought? The Muslim Brotherhood filled this power vacuum, and in the process, 
had the largest hand in drafting the country's constitution. So it put structural and systemic actions into place to ensure that the Muslim Brotherhood's views would carry the day in major policy discussions. It omitted from the new constitution any ability to impeach the president. And then after Morrissey took power, he claimed for himself what amounted to the powers of a pharaoh. He proclaimed himself above the constitution. He proclaimed that he alone had power over the military. He could supersede the constitution, that he could dissolve the parliament and force new elections at any point he chose. He basically took for himself the powers of a king very shortly after taking office. And the the torture and beatings continued. And actually, from what I've heard, they had escalated, especially against the groups that the Muslim Brotherhood was against. Having spent their time on the fringes, they obviously had plenty of time to declare and name and learn their enemies. And now that they are learning ways of incorporating and ingratiating themselves into the political upfront, out in the open public political process of Egypt, they're now able to exact their revenge publicly. But that didn't go over so well. But of all (laughs) institutions to respond to that wielding of power and to react in the name of the people to take down that government... It was the Egyptian military. Morsi claimed all these powers for himself, and the unrest about that among Egypt's populace has been growing and growing, and that culminated in the largest sustained street protests in Egypt's history, like in the entire history of the nation. You could actually see it from the satellites. It was that big. Oh, yeah. It, like, not just streets were full. Cities were full of protesters. Um, I believe uh, there were several more mil- several million more protesters than there were people who voted for Morsi in the first place. 83.7 in 2012. So in a, in a nation of 84 million people, over something like 14 million or so protested. The military deposed the president. Yes. Stripped him of power, dissolved the constitution, declared that a new constitution would be written and then elections would be called. And in the days since that happened, the actions of the military have begun to go after the foes of the military, specifically the Muslim Brotherhood. This is from a CNN article. Egypt's top prosecutor opened an investigation Thursday into claims that Mohamed Morsi and top leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood incited violence and the killing of protesters a day after the military ousted the country's first democratically elected president. The military moved to arrest leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood who supported Morsi's rule and to silence their communication outlets. Yeah, they've shut down, like, the public television station. They've shut down all the Muslim Brotherhood radio stations. And, like, we're going to see if the society that Egypt moves to become next is going to be more inclusive. I think that's clearly what the people of Egypt have literally taken to the The streets streets for. Yeah. And short of that, you would have never gotten the amount of solidarity that there was on display in that. Literally more people in the streets than voted for Morsi. Mm -hmm. But it's another thing entirely to take that reaction against being excluded 
and turn that into inclusion rather than just turning into your moment for revenge and for vengeance. And unfortunately, people have already died. There have already been clashes between Muslim Brotherhood supporters, people who supported Morsi. And of course, the Muslim Brotherhood is trying to straddle the line between being a rebel guerrilla organization and being a political group by like calling for people to become martyrs in the name of the cause of protecting Morsi's rule. Um, They're asking for safe passage was the last I heard that Morsi and like the top Muslim Brotherhood. Right, but yeah. the, the Egyptian prosecutor, it says here in the CNN article, uh, issued, the prosecutor issued an order preventing Morsi and 35 others from leaving the country while they are under investigation. I also think he's thinking he's about to get strung up. Yeah. Which, judging by how he acted, is not an unimaginable response. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, we... Humanity is reactionary, but being civilized means you try to learn to react in ways that come from your higher functions, from your higher self. Mm-hmm. Like reason. And, and love. And, and empathy. Faith. And understanding. And not just revenge, bloodthirst, uh, the desire to conquer. And so I, I would hope Americans take the lesson from Egypt that participation is simply irreplaceable. Nothing substitutes for participating. Whether the systems to refl- to translate that participation into laws are working well or not, more participation is the answer. Yeah, it's definitely not less. You know, and it's, it's not less. Yeah. And it's also, you know, trying to get people to engage, you know, on multiple levels of not just, you know, vote, but, you know, to take interest in certain issues and discuss certain issues with your peers. You have, you know, say a proposition is coming up in California and you have a lot of information about it, you know, to talk to your neighbors about that proposition because that's also one of the things that we're seeing is local and state politics is incredibly oh well it's, it's disappearing so, but it's so it's important. so important and in fact a lot of those are more of an immediate impact on or your more, day-to-day more immediate and more profound impact on it's, your day-to-day than you know your national politics and there's so many people that will you know show up for a presidential election and vote just for the president or, you know, maybe a couple others, but, you know, that don't have a single idea about what's going on that they can do for within their local community. That's why, like, the midterm elections, you always have such a huge drop-off in numbers. It's like, that is why we have a crappy Congress. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, That's you, exactly why we have a crappy crap Congress. You know, that people have to actually not, you know, not just vote for the national elections, but vote consistently, you know, make an effort of finding out about your local propositions and issues that, you know, are coming up to vote and being, you know, active in not just one way, but in multiple ways. And, and again, you know, those things are, are 
to a certain level privileges, you know, that come with people that have extra time, you know, and whatnot. But that. But at the same time, I don't think we have the privilege of not, not participating. Part- well, oh, no. And, and so, know, yes. Oh, absolutely. Like, and absolutely. And that's, and that's and where I, the switch comes for me. Is well, and so I'm saying, like, those people that have the time to investigate, that have the time to look at these issues that maybe somebody else may not to, you know, be the one to talk to your neighbors, you know, if you're walking down the street. Hey, have you heard about Prop so and so? Coming from a relative place of much privilege myself, I have learned that the moment at which I think politics doesn't affect me is the moment where I'm most reveling in my privilege because it means that I am being blindest. I'm paying the least attention to what is actually being done around me and being done in my name. Learning about politics made me confront my own privilege and still makes me confront my own privilege because it shows me the ways in which I've not paid attention and didn't even know that attention should have been paid. And again, like I I think you're exactly right that that's where you cannot replace engagement. No. And really communicating with other people. Well, I think that's one of the things that that is, you know, because I mean, what, you know, there's that saying that, you know, polite conversation should never involve religion and politics, you know, right? but and it's one of those things where it's like, well, you know, I mean, to, to use very frank language, you have to fuck politeness, right? You know that it's important. Well, it's one of those things where I think it is important to you know when when these when these issues are are happening to you know not just look at the news, not just quietly do some reading, you know, but to go out and engage people because that is part of how you build that empathy and that community that you're talking about. It's also a matter of sharing your thoughts with the people who already trust you, who already consider you a part of their tribe, and will already take in new information information from you without immediately reverting back to the old thinking that they got. Yeah, to, you know, not just talk to your community, but, you know, I mean, I obviously understand why people may not want to talk about it with their work colleagues, you know, but if they go out and, you know, they're sitting at a bar, you know, engage in people, engage in, in, in awareness of these important issues. They are so important. Yeah, and again, I, I think it's another, like, that that whole don't talk about religion and politics thing is another bit of bullshit pop cultural wisdom that we somehow have not fully divested ourselves of. We really need to get rid of that, though. For the yeah. exact reason that you outlined, because politics are the things that do affect us. They are literally the things that directly affect us that we have some hand in deciding. Yes. You and know. And so, I mean, like, it's we are either going to learn that politics affects us by participating in it and doing what little we can to control its ebb and flow, or we learn that politics affects us when it fucking runs us over. Yes. And that's. And we learn either way. Yeah. <laughs> One way is a well, lot more you know, rewarding. And, and sometimes, you know, I mean, dip, I think people can and do go through their life without ever. Even know, not knowing that they were run over is is one of the scariest, I think, aspects of not being actively engaged 
is that you know you you literally have no idea of what's happening to you. Right, it's an unknown unknown. Yeah, you know, as, you're as just Donald Rumsfeld said. <laughs> we have the known knowns, the known unknowns, and then the unknown unknowns, unknowns which yeah. are the things that we don't know. We don't know. No. Yes. And and that's you know and that is part of the things that you realize by not just engaging with your friends and family, but you know talking to often complete strangers about something gives you that your recognition of unknown unknown when they bring up a point of view or when they bring up you know um, intersectionalities or convergences that you never would have seen yourself. You know, and and I think that or is, when they say something that is so completely blind to those things that you want to smack them upside the head, like it's important to respond, but to respond in a way that can be illuminating. Hopefully, hopefully. yes, you can't. You can't know. always. You know, it's it's one of those things where just like like when you said, you know, there are certain certain you there's no 100% anything in yeah, human exactly. culture and human systems you cannot 100% prevent you can't 100% convince you can't 100% liberate liberate like, like you can't do any of those things but you know what you can do is try to be a better communicator yeah. Try to be a more effective communicator, not necessarily take things so personally, you know, because that's one of the biggest things about having political conversations is to not take certain things as a personal insult. Well, and see, that's where I that's where my thought about like emotions comes in, because when you know what emotional space the person is operating in, then you will know what you can't say, what you know is going to set that person into their defensive crouch. Um, And you can also remain open in the moment to allow that person to reveal what they're really feeling about and thinking about. And again, like conservatism is so much more obsessed with feelings than mm-hmm. thinkings that it's more important to be able to connect that way. But yeah, and I think bringing back what you were saying earlier, like dissent is always. Is often, not always, but it's often a lonely place or it starts out as a lonely place until you and can. Important, and an important place. Usually, like, the biggest impact that we can generally make is within our own communities. It's not necessarily in communities outside of our own. Not all the time, but a lot of times. Well, and here's the even more Oprah-ish thing. It's that having that shift in thought about yourself changes you as a person. That changes your community. That changes your country. Yes. No matter who else you spread it to, it's going to spread just by virtue of the fact that you slightly open your mind or change your mind a little bit about something and then go about your life interacting with the world that you interact with, living in the country and then participating in whatever elections you participate in. The point is to be willing to change your mind. Yes, be willing to change your mind. But I think also, you know, if if you are thoroughly convinced, you know, like, for example, you know, if you take like issues of, you know, sexism, you know, it, 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 it's not going to change if it's just women, you know, standing oh, up for God, ourselves yes. that, yes. you know, men have to stand up to their male peers 
you know, because that's going to make a significant difference. And so whether and that's true with any other issue of and you, any other group. Yes. Dynamic. Yes. And, and any type of dynamic of like, you know, of and that's what makes dissent often so lonely is the fact that, you know, part of that active change and growth, because that's what it is, is standing up to your peers. Standing up to your tribe. Yes. And that's one of the toughest things for humans to do because it's it's against well, our evolutionary instinct. It It's against our instinct. It's painful. You know, you, it often results in rejection. Right. It can rejection sour. from the people who have approved us previously. Yes. And I mean, have you seen us? Who else would accept us? <laughs> 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 so, yeah, you know, those, those are some of the things that people need to start, you know, kind of quietly thinking. Because you don't have to be loud about it. You know, that's also another misconception that, you know, you have to be belligerent or you have to be loud. I mean, you know, there's just like there are different personality styles. You know, you you can find your own way of going about it. In America, again, we've replaced quality with volume in so many aspects, especially the way we view media. Technologies that we use are still able to convey our stories more quickly and more thoroughly than we ever could before. So, I mean, I take a lot of hope from that and from people still being willing to use direct action, even in America sometimes. I just think that for so long, being American was redefined away from being an active participant in civic life and in your government. Um, And I think it's time to bring the government a little bit closer to us. You know, that is, I mean, the participation in government is, is, you know, that saying that, yes, we are part of government, that government is part of us. Right. Instead of that, it's some monolithic external entity that we have no control or idea. or Right. And that therefore we can loathe safe in the knowledge that our loathing is participation enough. Mm-hmm. That is one of the the most counterproductive reactions. Oh yeah, but it's the, I think the reason it's so prevalent is that it's psychologically comforting because it distances us from our actions. It makes us believe that that consequence did not happen as a result of anything we chose to do or didn't do. And you can always blame somebody else you if you always don't. blame the brown guy. <laughs> always. Or the poor guy, or the woman. Or the gay guy, or you know, whoever else is happens to be on your bullseye for the if there's day. There's a gay brown woman. It's a threefer. You've yeah yeah that and that was one of the you know issues of the VRA and doma rolling was you know for a lot of people in the gay GLBT community that were not white. You know, they're like we're we're feeling really 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 like, you know like and, and the most for, divided fucking bittersweet week yeah and especially you know i mean for and i think for people that were in states like you know california and new yeah. york or where states in the states where gay marriage is legal you know like i think for those folks you know it was it was much more of a victory but for you know the the you know especially people of color in in more conservative states they're like well we still can't get married so like this doesn't really even you know affect us Th- thanks 
you know, in, you know, I mean, because it, 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 it's, it's opened up such a big can of worms in terms of taxation, right. in terms of, you know, everything else that, you know, with the Voting Rights Act getting basically sawed off at the knees that it has, it's actually made it harder to promote, you know, these changes in a lot of the conservative states. In the pro-choice movement, you know, the voting rights have been a huge strategy mm-hmm. for keeping, you know, choice legal, you know, in the pro-choice fight that's going to continue for, I don't know, probably the rest of my life. Yeah, I guess forever. I guess it's pretty clearly never going away. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm 38 and it's, yeah, Roe versus Wade was legalized in 75, I believe. And I was born in 75, so it's been my entire life. I can't really see it going away anytime soon. Yeah, I think Republicans are still going to try to get into your lady parts for, for quite many a, a bright and yeah. shining day ahead. You know, and, and also I think, you know, one of the big things that for the... Um, you know, GLBT community is that, you know, this is this is just the beginning. There's oh, still so much left. Yeah, there's so much work left to do. I mean, it's still legal in what, like 25 or 30 states to fire someone for being gay. Well, and the um, Supreme Court ruling for worker harassment. Right, exactly. Yeah, just, you know, made, just made it more just difficult. Make it, you know, and, and actually that law actually has more of a direct impact for the community, you know, in a sense of discrimination. Because, you know, I mean, in in any given community, only certain people are getting married, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's single or out of choice or whatnot. But, you know, the entire community faces the possibility of discrimination for work, housing, etc. Well, yeah, and those still... Like the the homophobic kind of discrimination also intersects with racial minority discrimination mm-hmm. and you know gender discrimination. discrimination. Like and it's and again we do so much legwork to try to convince ourselves that our progress means we've won and it's over, but it's never over because everything is always changing. The world is not a. Uh a static place it's a dynamic environment all the time yeah it's a series of environments on environments on Mm -hmm. environments and like communities of communities and i mean even our bodies are communities of communities of communities of little organisms and things that add up into this strange monstrous animal that we convince is just one thing it's just one person in this brain but we're more bacteria than our own cells Yeah, exactly. We are entire worlds unto ourselves, and yet this is, like, the one planet we share. So I feel like it's worthwhile to try to understand all the other planets on this planet. And I feel wonderful that your planet came to orbit near mine tonight. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for for having me. Hopefully we'll have more in the future. Oh, I would love to. I would love to. Because, I mean, like, I, I started it as an excuse to rant about politics and I've continued it as an excuse to rant about (laughs) About politics politics. (laughs) and I find that it is a good outlet for me to not only try to game out what I think because it's like for the same reason that I post stuff on Facebook because it's my kind of discovery process of learning what's happening 
but also to try to understand the ways that I relate to other people, both when I'm agreeing with them in, like, political stuff and when I'm disagreeing, especially when I disagree with them. And it's it's great to have you aboard for that journey. Mm, thank you. You know, I appreciate you making the podcast because I probably never would have gotten together all the equipment to do it. <laughs> oh, anytime. Anytime. My studio studio is is wide open. Yes. <laughs> we are not booked at all. <laughs> next time, I'll need to come more prepared. On the next episode of the By That I Mean podcast... I will expect footnotes from you. Mm -hmm. I will expect an annotated bibliography. Okay. MLA style. None of that APA nonsense. (laughs) Is there such a big difference? I really don't know. I remember my English teacher, like, was ready to battle to the death over the legitimacy of one over the other, but I don't even remember which was which. I feel like it's a thing that English teachers invented to be able to fight with other English teachers. Mm, like the Oxford comma. Exactly. I'm a fan of the Oxford comma, by the way. But would you die for the Oxford comma? I mean, the Oxford comma <laughs> makes it much more clear. I wouldn't die for it, but... You know, <laughs> but it might kill someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on the person, you know. I mean, I wouldn't just kill anyone. It would be really annoying. It seems to prevent more misunderstanding. Well, so that's I, true. Yes. Clarity, clarity is hopeful. And we'll be clear on the next episode. The By That I Mean podcast is a production of the MFP Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you like us, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can leave hilarious, sexy comments or cookie recipes on the iTunes page in the iTunes store or on our Facebook at facebook.com slash by that I mean. You can tweet me at MFP Seth. And until next time, I am Seth Pearson. 